Friday Lunchtime Lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hi, and welcome to ODI Fridays. Thank you all for coming. Um, today we're hearing from Craig Fagan, who leads the Web Foundation's uh, digital equality and citizen <coughs> participation work. Um, so he'll be talking to us about data protection in developing countries and the challenges for enforcing that. So a couple of housekeeping rules before we start. If you're on Twitter and you'd like to, um, on the live stream, and you'd like to ask or um, any questions or any comments, please use the hashtag ODI Fridays. Also, if you could leave any questions to the end, I'll come around with the mic, um, and then everyone here and at the live stream at home can hear you. All right, I'll pass it over to Craig now. Thank you. So I appreciate everyone coming today. Um, and as Julian said, we'll have time for questions after this. Um, so one of the things is the Web Foundation, just to tell you a little bit about us. Um, we were started about like eight years ago by the creator of the World Wide Web, uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee. And his idea um, was when he created the web that he was giving this back to everyone, that it was something that wasn't you can't own, you can't copyright, it's, it's for everyone. And to make sure when people are online that they feel safe. But we also know that, number one, most people, about half, according to our estimates, about 50% of the world aren't online. That's, we're going to meet that mark coming up soon. And even when you're online, if you get online, particularly if you think about new people coming online, um, groups that were never online before, maybe we see digital gender gaps, um, we see marginalized groups not online. When they're getting online, are they feeling safe? What's happening with their rights? What's happening with our rights? We primarily work in low and middle income countries. Um, so we have hubs around the world. We're, we're a small organization. We're about 34 people globally. We have a hub here in London, one in Washington, DC, also in Cape Town, South Africa, and in Jakarta, Indonesia. And because of the fact that we're looking and working primarily in low and middle income countries, we started to think about, okay, what happens with personal data protections in these countries? Is everyone being treated equally? Are we all equally protected? And we also know if you think about the own countries you're from, whether you're from the US or um, UK, Germany, Ghana, everyone knows that there's issues about personal data. It's really in the discussions right now. So we wanted to kind of delve into that a little bit more. And this is what I'm going to try to talk about, because as we become increasingly digital, um, basically our, our data is, is everywhere, right? We're leaving digital footprints, whether it's through our mobile phones that we're connecting, whether you're actually looking for the web, but what the companies are getting from us and digitalizing, or you're searching sites on Google or any search engine, we're leaving larger digital footprints. And this has to do a lot with what's going on with the Internet of Things, right? That more and more things are connected, more devices are connected. Um, according to IBM, 90% of the data that exists today was created in the last two years. I mean, think about that. And some other figures show that um, they measure data in terms of um, zettabytes, and it's basically gone from, two, in 2005, so about 12 years ago, from 0.1, zettabyte of data that was all over the world, we're now at 47 zettabytes. That's 470 times increase. And the estimate is that if you were to record every spoken word for human beings around the world, that would, only, that would be less amount of data. Okay, so we're talking about we're having huge amounts of data produced by us by in this room and outside this room. Um, and that we also see that there's um, about six devices connected for every individual. Um, that's estimated to be in the next three years by Cisco. And we've already passed at the number of devices as there are people in the world. Okay, so we're talking about we're, we're, no matter if you think you're connected or not, if you think about what you have on you right now, I have my mobile phone, I've got my computer, you think about your devices at home, what's tracking sensors, there's increasingly more and more data. So this is something that we wanted to, to definitely get into and understand a little bit more about what's going on. So this issue of, is our data being used to build trust? Um, as our, we're getting more and more data out there, is it actually creating a system of trust? Um, and this is something that um, is really important when you think about the increasing footprint we have and what's also going on with um, the amount of data that's, that we're putting out there and how people feel about that data. And a lot of consumer um, indices and surveys have been done that talk about <laughs> Um, people are feeling increasingly less secure with their data. So if we think about here in the UK only, um, estimates show that about only 25% of the population, that's one in four British people, understand how companies use their personal data. Okay, so we're talking about, in, think about the UK, this is happening, and then take this to another country, like Nigeria or Ghana or Brazil. This is what we wanted to understand. How are people feeling about their data? 
Um, there's been some good survey work done. For example, um, Ipsos Mori does a survey that covers about 22 countries every year. And you've got countries like South Africa, um, Brazil, Mexico, Indonesia, India. So you're starting to understand a little bit what's happening with them. Um, and what we see is across the board that we're not feeling, people are not feeling that their privacy is being secured. Um, and this has to do with some of the fact that, um, just give me one second. I was having problems with my presentation view. So, um, so what we see is that um, when this is happening, um, yeah, okay. And um, about our privacy issues, think about the data breaches. I mean, who, who's not heard about Yahoo in the last month, right? That we see that there was a huge lie. The company lied about how many people were affected. Three billion accounts were affected. Think about that size of the population of the world. Three billion accounts. Our accounts here, our accounts in any part of the country. Anyone has Yahoo. Um, and they lie when they first had the data breach. They said first it was only a small amount of account, uh, accounts, and they said it was one billion. And then because of a merger, they had to admit that it was three billion. Um, and then in the U.S. case, um, who's heard of Equifax? So very hands up. So maybe about in this room, it's about like, you know, 50% of the people, 60%. So this has affected basically half the U.S. population releasing um, social security numbers, so basically your personal identification number, your address, anything that someone could take and create a, a parallel profile of you. Um, and we see this not only in the US um, or UK or in Europe, but also um, in Brazil, for example, last year, um, their municipal, municipality of Sao Paulo had a huge data breach, about 650,000 accounts of public servants and patients in hospitals, and their data was put out there. And there's sites where you can actually Call this data and you can go in and find. So it's not like it's just staying within Brazil. This is stuff that, co that goes global. Um, and the thing is, we want to understand a little bit of how is our data being collected. So if we see the situation where, okay, as a consumer, we feel that um, more and more data, we have a greater digital footprint of all these interconnected devices, we're not having trust in the companies that are holding our data. We don't understand what's happening with the data um, and what's actually being collected. So there is um, a really interesting survey put out by a U.S. think tank, think tank called Corporate um, New, New America Institute. It's the corporate, um, basically a corporate transparency survey of tech companies. It's 22 companies around the globe, from Apple to Vodafone to um, Americell, um, Etisal. Like they have a large breadth of companies. And what it shows is that the policies, the scale, they, the assigned points for the number of transparency for policies around data protection and privacy Companies across the board are scoring about a failing grade, 33% out of 100 points. People don't understand about what happens with their policies. And, uh, you know, all of us, I'm sure, when you go on, you just kind of click, right? You get a new update in terms of service. How many people are actually looking to see, like, I got last week something, I think, from, um, was it from Twitter? And I just, I started to read it, and I couldn't, I, like, my eyes started to glaze over. And I was like, I can't really understand what's going on here. Am I really going to get off of Twitter? No, so I need to just sign. There's really no recourse, right? We're basically have our hands tied behind our backs. And most people are not aware about the types of personal information collected. So for example, in the UK, South Africa, US, Indonesia, Germany, Brazil, over two thirds of the population don't understand what's happening to their personal information according to this global survey Ipsos Mor that Ipsos Mori did um, just in the last year. Um, we don't understand how people are using their data. So same thing, over one third of the people in China, India, and Canada don't understand um, how companies are using their data. So we don't know what's being collected and we don't understand what they're doing with the data that's being collected. And this is actually quite important when you think about other changes that are happening. So how many people have heard of Aadhaar from India? Do you know what that is? Okay, so it's a, no one understands, no one raised their hands for people who are online. Um, so Aadhaar is a system of a biometric digital ID that the Indian government decided dating back to 2010 that they wanted everyone in the country to have. And it was basically the idea was is to cut bureaucracy, corruption, etc. If we get people's biometric digital ID, you get a card that you access public services, you pay your taxes, you get your passport. But it was not, they said by law people weren't forced, but by, by fact, by de facto, they had to because you wouldn't be able to be recognized if you didn't have this digital ID. Um, and there was a slew of court cases. There's been some really interesting um, information that's come up, and we, we cover this issue in the report. There's some examples out there. 
and it's been covered by other people, of concerns about like basically people that never were online, never connected, um, people in different country, in different rural communities, um, different ethnic groups, were being forced to give her their ID, uh, getting their their biometric ID taken with a photo. Some of them never had their photo taken before, and. Um, it was only in the last, um, last like basically six weeks that there was a Supreme Court ruling that said, well, actually, um, constitutionally, you have a right to privacy. And this has opened a whole new discussion about, well, if you have a right to privacy, then how can we force people to take their um, biometric ID if they don't want to? But it's not that this is only happening in India, where 92, over 92% of the people had to get, so we're talking about over 1 billion people had to get um, uh, digital ID done for biometric um, identification. This is also starting to happen in South Africa, in, in India, in, um, sorry, I mentioned India, but in South Africa, in Nigeria, in Brazil, Philippines, there's a move towards biometric IDs. Well, then how is this protecting us? If you could just, yeah. Um, how is this protecting us if we think about the, we take this scenario, we don't understand what's happening to our ID, what, or, sorry, with our personal data, what companies are doing with it. We um, don't understand what's actually being collected from them and by them. Um, and then are we protected by the laws in our own country, right? If I just gave this example from India where my government, if I was Indian, was telling me I had to give my biometric ID if I never even had a digital footprint before, all of a sudden I'm going to have one. Are there laws that are protecting us? Well, unfortunately, no. Um, what we see is that um, from the web index that we put out, um, so the World Wide Web Foundation, um, the last index we put out on looking at the, basically the state of the web was about three years ago. And we found in the countries we surveyed, only 84% um, of the countries did not have protections in place for data. Um, so we're talking a huge issue. And increasingly, governments are demanding data from companies that hold it. So Google has had more requests um, from in the last six months from countries to give over data that was of users than they had previously ever. So what you're seeing is, is that increasingly pressures are coming from governments to disclose data that's being held by companies, which we don't understand what they're actually holding. Um, and this is for many different reasons. We also saw the same thing with Facebook. There was an interesting study that came out recently um, um, looking at different African countries. And they saw that for the, in, um, in the last, um, this is most requests ever of Facebook to give over user profile data by governments in Africa. So this is not just happening globally. We see it within different countries that this is a serious problem. So this graph um, or table that you see here, um, and I'm not sure if it's not so much important that you just see that where most of the names are f of different in regional initiatives are falling are either on the weak or very weak side in terms of regulations. And these are not even regulations. These are more of agreements at the regional level of how to deal with sharing data across borders, right? Like if I'm a user in the US and um, the company is sitting in uh, Belgium, how is my data being shared across borders, right? What are protections? Am I protected the same way I'm in the US when it goes to Belgium? Um, things about also about surveillance, how do you balance surveillance with data protection? And this is from UNCTAD, which is a UN body that looks at trade agreements um, and development. Um, but the most, and this is in, we reproduced this in the report, but most of the things except for the EU, which you see here, which um, includes a new directive that's coming online uh, this coming year called the EU General um, Data Protection Regulation, where all EU members will have to come in to standard with that. Um, if you see, most of the things are falling on the weak or very weak legislative side. If we delve dive into the regional level, what's happening in, at the country level with data protections, again, this is from UNCTAD last year. Um, this is the percent, if you see the color, so basically blue is existing regulations for data protection, red would be partial, and then green is draft law. So that means that there's some law that's sitting in their parliament or our parliament um, that's not moved forward. And most of the laws globally are all falling in the U.S. So Europe accounts for 40% of all the data protection laws that exist on the books, right? Um, and you can see across other regions that most of them do not either have any, they count very small for percentage globally of where the laws are, or most of them are in draft form, which you would see in Africa. So just to kind of delve deeper into that, into Nigeria, that's the Nigerian flag, um, we started to look a little bit as part of the study um, and also for our own priorities at about um, various countries around the world. So the report covers in the, in the chapter, the la last chapter, which I think is chapter five, 
sort of a snapshot of what the state of data protection is. Um, and in Nigeria, what's really interesting is there's a really good draft law that local organizations like, they were involved in supporting, to have an, a comprehensive data protection regulation, and it's been stuck for the last, I think, two or three years in Congress as a draft form. Um, and as a result, even though the Constitution guarantees the right to privacy, and we, see, we saw this not only in Nigeria, but in many different countries, there is a right to privacy in the Constitution that doesn't necessarily translate into laws that protect your data that's being, that's being held by companies or governments. Um, so in this case, what's happened is, the, in, Nigeria is a very good example because a lot of the legislation is fragmented. So the telecom sector has regulation about what do you do with mobile phone data, like what are you, how are you supposed to handle data. Um, consumers, um, the consumer sector, the cons there's a consumer law that says, well, how are you supposed to handle consumer data properly? Um, and there's also stuff around um, like basically communication laws from a com communication um, institution, the Communications Commission. But there's no, this piecemeal factor means that no one, there's no overarching thing about says, what has to be done? How do you protect data? So it's a lot of mismatch. And what happens is people fall between the cracks in this. And when we first started this work um, earlier this year, we had a small roundtable in Nigeria with some local organizations, <laughs> with some companies, some consumer groups. Um, and we were talking about like, you know, what's going on with the state of protection in Nigeria. And one, a local organization called Paradigm, a Paradigm Initiative, the executive director told a really striking story, which still stays with me. He was like, yeah, you know, I went to buy some food on the street corner from a street vendor and they wrapped up my food in someone's personal data. Basically, it was sheets, reams of paper that had been thrown out by, you know, the tax authority or the health department. And they had all personal information on this. So we're not even talking just digital, like you have to hack the system. This was being put out in paper form by the government, just dumping it. And there's no recourse. You, don't, you can't say you violated a law by doing that because maybe you could go to the Constitution, argue privacy, but there's no data protection regulation that would allow anyone to take this to court. He also told another story which struck me as well about being able to triangulate data that was being published by a bank about someone's health status. So basically someone had gone to the hospital, used their card to make payments for the treatment, and it came up online that they made these payments and you could hack, you could see, it wasn't even hacking the system and you could triangulate the data. Um, so basically what we see is um, in the case of Nigeria and these examples that there's, even though um, there is no regulation, there's definitely a need for regulation. And again, if you go back to kind of my earlier remarks, as more people come online, it's actually even more urgent that we deal with this problem because more digital footprints are gonna be left and at the same time, we see companies increasingly commodifying our data, right? The real value of a company like Google or Facebook is not so much what they're, the fact that the services they provide, but the data they hold, because that data is used for targeted advertising, right? And we could go into many other discussions about that. But this is one of the things why there's definitely a need to level the field. So um, I talked a little bit about that there's this question about, and this is kind of more of an academic argument, um, but I'll just kind of put it out there, is that people are talking about how do you then, in this context, deal with who holds the data, who's controlling it, and how it's being used. And do you deal with that at the, at the bottom level? Do you deal with that of me as a user, like saying, hey, you know, um, X company, I'm, I, you hold this data, I'm fine with you to share this part, this part, and this part, but I don't want you sharing this, this, and this. And, I'm, and I have control over my data that way. I'm saying how you can use my data, how it can be replicated, et cetera. Um, and there's another argument that says, no, we need to go at the top level and basically cut off the, that, those check marks at, across the board so that none of that's happening. But the argument that's being kind of put out there is saying, well, actually, that's not realistic because there's the, the force of digitalization. If you think about what I said, uh, how, um, how much data has been created in the last two years and where we are right now, more data exists than any word ever spoken in by a human being, right, in terms of the, the quantity of data, um, you're not gonna stop it. We, we can't stop digitalization, so the best thing we can do is as a user control it, what's happening here, not at this level. And I don't know what that answer is, and we kind of, we, we talk a little about this debate in the, in the report that's out there, and hopefully you'll grab some copies. But what is definitely sure is there's an asymmetry in the information that's being controlled, right? Like, I don't know, even if I get the terms of service, and if the, you know, I'm living in the EU, I'm American, but I'm living in the EU, so if I um, wanted to know when this EU regulation comes on board, what's being <coughs> held by a company, I have the right to find that out, and I also have the right to pull that data. But 
Um, that doesn't mean that I also have control over other things. Like I'd have to basically go company by company to understand what's being held by me. So I don't have a lot, even with some empowerment, I really don't have some empowerment. And there's definitely an asymmetry in information across the board. And this is seen by some of the um, information I gave you about the surveys of how people are feeling about how data is being controlled um, and what they understand um, what's happening with their data. Um, so this is really kind of used this word about data commodification um, or datafication. So people are talking this more like in an academic setting about, you know, that our data, us are being, we're being um, basically sold off. So how do you stop that pressure? And um, some of the issues around control are quite important. So we started looking in the report about some issues about how you would deal with control. Um, some of these are really about trust, going back to this issue of trust. So it's about transparency, so understanding about what policies are there. We did a hackathon a couple weeks ago with a software company here in London, but they have offices around the world called ThoughtWorks. Um, they kind of do more, I guess you'd say, like a ethical or diversity approach to their company, and they try to do that as part of their business model. Um, but they work with like, you know, Fortune 500 companies across the board, and they did this hackathon and they said, we want to do a value proposition about how we hack terms of service agreements. How do we make this much easier for people? Can we standardize through, and people have been trying to do this for the last five years or more, how do we make sure either through Creative Commons like um, um, icons or just coming up with a very simple way that if you, you know, if anyone has like food allergies, right, and you go to the store these days, you can look at a package and you see right away, okay, it says like, like a GF for it's gluten free, right? Or it has like a wheat symbol with an X crossed out, or it says vegan, like a V for, for veg vegan or vegetarian friendly. Why can't we do that with terms of service? Why can't we have signage that lets us know right away, hey, in this thing, they're capturing this amount of my data, or they're gonna be using it this way, or I don't have any rights. That's one of this kind of, this is where things are starting to move. And I think it's interesting about this transparency issue. Um, the other thing is about responsiveness. So like, and this is, we'll see what happens. I was talking with Julian just before about with this EU regulation, what happens when, when governments actually do this, um, when they put the laws into the books in practice, is that will there be a responsive channel? So even if I understood that um, Google holds this much of my information or Uber holds this much of my information, what's my options? Can I complain? If, I'm, if the terms of service change and I don't want to abandon the service, do I have a recourse to say, actually, you know what? I'm not okay with this. Why don't we have that choice? Why don't, why doesn't the company ask us or why don't we have the recourse? Like as you would have like with the government of an ombudsman or ombudsperson to say, you know, I'm actually, I'm not happy with the way the terms of service are. What are my recourses? I'm, you know, I want to know more. I'm, I'm upset by this. Um, and this goes to remedies that there's actually things that are being done to remedy the situation. Um, so part of this discussion around maybe mobilizing more consumer groups, I talked about this example of consumer data. So if you think about like in the retail sector or your mobile phone, this is a consumer issue, right? So one thing is it could be better consumer regulation as a consumer, my consumer rights, your consumer rights that we'd have to have these types of mechanisms to complain about the data protection. Um, the other thing is having data protection laws in place, right? So when we saw across the countries, except that we looked at Brazil, um, Dominican Republic, India, Indonesia, uh, Mexico, Nigeria, and South Africa, and Mexico, I hope I said already, in the, in the report. And you'll see that those profiles of each of those countries about the regulations in place, only, um, if I'm remembering correctly, only Mexico, South Africa, and the Philippines have, regulation, have a data protection, a general data protection law. But in those countries, even when there are, it's not being implemented, right? So you can even have a good law, but it's not being upheld. And there's very easy ways you can do that. You underfund the institutions that are supposed to implement them. Or you say, oh, well, we need this, but we're not going to create it yet. So then it basically, uh, if you're starting a new legal structure and you don't set up the right institutional framework, you can easily undo this. And this is what's been the criticism in South Africa, that they're not setting up the right institutions that they said they were going to set up. So there's ways you can do this even if you have the regulations. And in Mexico, I don't think I need to go into any examples about there's been huge violations of surveillance that have been well documented, um, that things are not being protected. So, and actually rights are being violated. I think what's interesting is if we start to move this discourse to the idea of that your right to privacy and, and is equal to your right to personal data protection, as any right, your right to free speech or your right to information, that this is something that's essential. And people are working on digital rights um, in many countries, like in the UK, in the EU, 
I mentioned this in, um, organization Paradigm Initiative in Nigeria, but in many countries, in, especially in low and middle income countries, this discussion is still very nascent. It's just beginning to say that people are becoming aware as they're coming more online that they need to worry about data protection. So with that, um, open to questions, there's my email and Twitter handle, um, also for the Web Foundation and our Facebook page. So um, I turn it over to questions now. And I hope you enjoyed the discussion so far. Yeah, just have a round of applause for Rebecca. Um, yeah, we'll open up to questions. Uh, the microphone won't amplify your voice, but it's for the people uh, at home to be able to hear you. Uh, is there any que uh, questions someone wants to kick us off? With it, any questions? It's not so much a question, but you just mentioned a few countries where there's uh, the the cards are being used now, p capturing people's information. You mentioned India. Yeah. Well, this is one I've just received in Ireland, and it's the same thing. You can't access services unless you have it, but it's not compulsory that you have it. And the, the number of services that you will need your card to access is increasing, and it started a, a large debate. Um, and there was actually s uh, representatives from Scotland over during the week. There was... Uh, there was uh, because something similar happened, I think, a few years ago uh, in Scotland. So it started a large debate, um, but at the moment, probably a quarter of the population or more have now received their cards, and now the big debate is: do we give them back, or, or what's going to happen? So it's uh, we're starting down that journey mm. as well of uncertainty. That's it's really interesting. You're right. It's not something that's happening in, in, in EU, um, European, Western countries, you would say. Um, and it's the question I think is there is that, like you said, um, if anything, it's like, OK, like we opt to have a digital profile when we sign on the Twitter, Facebook, Google. Right. I could opt out. I could actually say I don't want to do that. I could also opt out not to use my credit card. Right. So if I was really worried about being tracked, I don't use credit card payments. I use cash payments. But if you have to get the only way you can access government services, even if they say it's not obligatory, it's a way it's twisting our arm. You don't have a choice. There's no other alternative. If you want to enroll your kids in school or you want to access healthcare, you have to have that ID. By de facto, even though it might not be law, you have to get it. Otherwise, you're out of public, you're out of the government service system, which is different when you think about in terms of private transactions. Yeah. Earlier on, you mentioned the case of the Indian constitutional uh, judgment, which practically stopped the government from issuing the biometric um, ID cards. And uh, I find it really sort of sorry that um, a, human, a human right was used to stop a government from identifying its citizens. Because most of the times, GDPR is used against our own governments when it should be used against other big players in data which are most probably using our data the wrong way, whilst me identifying myself to the government is because I want to be sort of protected by the state if I am a citizen of a state, and unless he knows who I am, I cannot be protected. So I find it uh, a bit strange that, um, uh, admittedly, I haven't seen the judgment, and I haven't read the judgment, so I am sort of commenting a little bit uh, from, from um, an audience point of view, all I heard is from the news. But I can't see the rationale behind that judgment. Maybe you can have more insight into this. Why a government was stopped from identifying its own citizens when this kind of thing has been going on since time immemorial. So since early civilizations, the Romans identified their own citizens. So, okay, so the, I think there's a difference between saying identification and biometric identification, right? And in the case of India, what I was, I, sorry if it spoke too quickly through the case, is that um, the, there was a Supreme Court around another issue that said you have a right to privacy. And as a result, people that had been waging cases which had been ruled against them about why they didn't want to subscribe to this biometric um, digital IDs program um, were now feel that there is a uh, constitutional argument to bring these other cases forward, right? To say, we want to stop the process. And the cards have already been issued. I, there's over 90% of the population's covered. It's 1.1 billion cards. But people were trying to really hold out. Some people, for, for, um, from a rights-based perspective, didn't feel like this was something that they had to do. And the issue, which is different than me getting my driver's license or getting an, a social security number from my, from my country, is that it was capturing your digital information, right? This is a different, it's not just giving a name. It was this, is this that you 
your face, your digital, your digital profile is being created against your will. So I can have a number that's not necessarily associated with me as having a digital profile, but this was something that was being forced for biometric identification purposes. So it's a way that, you know, it was just, I think we're not, I'm not going to get into debates. I encourage you to look more into the program. It's actually a really interesting case because also a lot of donors, including the World Bank, have been championing this program and saying this was a really good way to deal with government inefficiency, corruption, um, wastage, people being left out of the system. I mean, there's also a big push within development circles, um, whoever follows sustainable development goals, there's a, a target to basically have pr um, everyone having identification, right? Because there's, there's this argument that children that are not being identified at birth don't have access to the system, they're being left behind and they're not being counted. And I'm not saying that that's not important, being counted and being the system. The question is the means that you do it and the fact of the digital footprint. But I encourage you to look at that and, and talk more after the, the Q&A. Thanks. Uh, just looking from a humanitarian, the perspective of a humanitarian organization operating in protection, for example, there's the absence of data protection laws in, in the countries they may be operating in. At the moment, they make up for that with regulations from like the ICRC data privacy handbook. You, the example you gave of standardizing terms of reference, is there anything similar for national data protection regulations? So either organizations or businesses operating in a country can quickly understand what measures they have to take for that country and the citizens of that country? That's a good question. I and mean, we didn't look into that question, but I know anecdotally, so what we started to do in the case of Nigeria after this discussion with some local partners, we decided to do um, work and do a mapping um, of understanding where are, who's capturing what data in the system, like what institutions are responsible um, and what data are they capturing. And because no one knew that up until now. Like they knew that like basically at a certain level, yeah, there's this regulation, this, but they didn't really understand the whole ecosystem if you want to put in that frame. So we know from this experience that it, it doesn't exist. I know with the European um, directive that companies are going through this process and under China, and there's been, you know, of course, like the big four companies come in and they're providing advice and support, like, you know, PWCs, the um, McKinsey's of the world, which is I'm not <coughs> making a judgment either way, but they're looking at how would a company comply with these types of regulations. So that's starting in that case, but I don't know anything else within the countries we looked at where there has been that sort of roadmap provided. The other thing I wanna mention, um, just hopefully get some more questions too, is um, if you think about data and I, as a part of a bigger piece of a puzzle. So basically we talked about a little bit how our data is being commodified. Well, it's being commodified because it helps to sell ads, it helps to better target things at us as a user. And that has to also fit into some issues which we have um, studied as part of the series was looking at algorithms. So basically, if algorithms are running, and you know there's a huge debate about algorithms right now, um, more broadly about how we're then giving inf getting information, whether it's about um, filter bubbles through political news or politically targeted advertising. I'm sure people have heard about the complaints both from the, around the UK Brexit and the US election, presidential election, that um, algorithms were basically feeding um, misinformation and disinformation to people that then affected outcomes of key elections. Um, we're also seeing this not only there, I mean, this is circus, um, circulated around recent elections, even in Kenya um, recently, that um, are being rerun. So what's interesting is if you think about data is what's needed to make algorithms run, and algorithms are essential for how artificial intelligence is used, right? So this is not just, if you think about our data, it's, it's, it's about this issue of protection, but protection also has a broader thing because it has a knock-on effect of what's happening to our digital world around us. So it's not simply like, okay, I wanna protect my data because of these rights, which are completely valid about, this is a human rights issue as I see it personally, um, it fits to what we have a right to know, but at the same time, this has, if we, don't, if we don't find ways to control this now of how our data is being commodified, for so to speak, then it also feeds into how what's shaping around the world, both socially, economically, and politically in our lives. So it's actually quite important that we deal with this piece of the puzzle for all these other issues that are affecting and people are concerned about because people have talked about the huge transformational change that AI will have. And that's great, artificial intelligence, there's things that can make our lives much better, but there's also ways that it can create and, and perpetuate discrimination and biases. And that is based on the data. So if the data is bad, like garbage in, garbage out argument, if the data that they're using is bad or they're making bad assumptions, then that affects how we are also being perceived and the way we interact with the world digitally and also offline. So I think it's just really important to keep this, that this is a bigger picture issue. 
Hi, I guess my question's related to that a bit. And you, you have been talking about this very much from the point of view of civil society and human rights. But when it comes to shaping the sort of regulations, I was wondering if you could say something a bit more about uh, the political economy around that, because there's going to be other actors other than civil society interested in shaping those digital reg uh, data regulations. Yeah, so that's actually a really good question. So what I just talked about. So I think in some ways there's a convergence of interest with some companies, for example, if they're operating in a very unsecure regulatory environment, they need for them, and especially if they're having, for example, with regulations in home country base that they have to comply with, then having clear rules of the game is much better for them, right? So if the standard is set at a certain level based on their home, um, home headquarters being in the US or in Europe, then at the end of the day, they're gonna have to comply with those regulations, but when they're happening on the ground, they might not be as easily to deal with. So for them, there is a sort of an inherent interest to understand what, like for any market environment, right? When a company's coming in, you want clear rules of the game. Otherwise, you're not going to invest. It's going to make kind of uncertainties and risk a risky environment for your investment. So having better regulations, good regulations, or regulations that are complying with what they have to do elsewhere in other countries, which is why the, the benchmark that the EU directive sets or in the U.S. legislation where a lot of tech companies are, are based, this is quite important for when you think about this cross-border flow of data. Um, but there's also obviously conflicting interests because of what I just told you about companies that rely on a data model for their business, um, a business model that's based on data, they're gonna wanna capture as much data that they can about us. And this is why I think there is a sweet spot between regulation and self, um, basically self-voluntary, um, voluntary soft law policies, right? So that companies, from an ethical perspective, just like you would expect a company to be concerned about what it's dumping in your environment, like, in, you know, like you don't want, we care about the environment, we care about, um, we make decisions sometimes about products about that. Companies have a corporate responsibility for the environment they're working in to make sure that they're also dealing with those ethical issues. And right now, I don't think, I think there's very few companies that are sorting that out correctly. And so that's why I think there needs to be this balance, a sweet spot between regulation and voluntary measures um, from companies that are put through pressure on the corporate responsibility agenda. So why shouldn't, I mean, if a company is going to de declare what they're producing in terms of CO2 emissions, why shouldn't they um, have transparent policies about what data they're capturing about us? Or what their data, rate, like what their um, data protection policy is, what that, how they're controlling our data, how they're destroying our data, what period of time do they hold it until? These are things that I should know about easily, and it's not being put out by companies because they don't see that Overall, I'm talking very generally, don't see that as a responsibility yet. And I think that's where us as consumers, just as we push the environmental agenda, can do a lot to push this agenda, the more we're aware. Just on, you, you mentioned only civil society and the private sector, but I was wondering if you, is there something you've seen around uh, the, the interests of governments themselves? Um, I mean, I think that there's been some good examples of government push. Like a lot of people talk about um, um, Brazil previous to the current administration. Um, there was actually quite an opening where the government created um, a regulatory framework that sort of held as a good practice model. Um, and there, it was a government, it was government took that initiative. I mean, of course, mother, you need, of course, in government, you've got many voices happening when you're doing a regulatory um, move. But there was, the government took that on and really helped set a benchmark on terms of regulation. That's kind of considered a good practice model on digital rights. But then again, you know, you have administrative changes and the current government is not doing what's on law. So there you go of an example. Yes, I'm interested to understand a little bit of uh, links between regulation and uh, delivering or implementation. Recently, the European Union is coming with the economic data directive. This means uh, this is type of uh, let's say, a dilemma now between protection of data and economic development. The data will bring by itself. If you think in terms of benefit from the data, because we, from the data you create innovation, from the innovation you create an economy, you create jobs. So how, how they can implement, how you link between uh, say data protection and implementation of data? Because then it, things are Completely. Yeah. That's a very good question. So um, part of us as an organization, and my colleague Anna, who's in the audience, spoke earlier to some of the um, fellows that are here from around the world about open data. Um, we produce an open data barometer. So we, as an organization, 
um, espouse the value and believe in the value of open data and that it can do for innovation, unlocking all these kind of public service delivery problems as well. Um, so it's not so it's not saying so, but at the same time, anyone who's working on open data has to deal with the other side of the coin, which are privacy and protections. So it's not saying that you can't have open data, but you have to deal with these issues about how do you make sure that the data that's being used when it's at a personal level is ensuring privacy and protections. Because we also know with open data, there's been many cases also here in the UK where when open data is released, you can triangulate the data and basically create user profiles. And I would not argue that's helping anyone for innovation or for the economy has actually a social negative impact. So you have to deal with these issues that allow open data to unleash all the things that we as an organization, and I know the Open Data Institute also believes, but you also have to deal with the other side of the coin, which is privacy and protection. And I don't, don't think those things need to coexist, and it's, it's something that's actually vital for both to function. So I don't think that there's an, an inherent contradiction. I actually think it's a bigger part of the same whole. How you can implement data protection? This is an issue. How you can implement data protection in terms of regulation and law? How you justify this type of? Uh, well, if the constitution in constitutional right, you have a right to privacy, and in privacy is being infringed by the increased amount of our data, a digital footprint that people can find out things about me that I don't feel all, my privacy is being violated. Then this is this is a legal issue, right? So there's this is where the issue of protections come in. Just as you would want a protection for your freedom of speech, right? You wouldn't want to give up your freedom of speech or your freedom of thought or your freedom of assembly. I also need to also have the right to have, be, have my right to privacy. That's also a right that's inherent. So I think that there's not necessarily, I don't think the contradiction exists. If you think about our fundamental rights, we need to understand that this is also part of that framework. Uh, from the from the work you've done so far, what would you say are the main kind of gaps yet to be filled in terms of our knowledge about um, the right kind of data regulation? So where should we be focusing our efforts on uh, kind of doing more in this area? Okay, well, I think just to take, uh, a before I go into that, to answer that question, which is also a very good one, just understand that um, this understanding what's happening in other contexts in low and middle income countries is not people are not paying attention to these issues on personal data at a global level or at a regional level, which is one of the reasons why we wanted to try to understand better what's happening. Um, and I think that there is uh, definitely a, a need for more research to be done about how you deal with these questions in contexts that have not been for fully studied um, and why there are these laws that are la languishing in Congress or in the Parliament um, that are considered good that are not moving anywhere. And in considering about what you're, if I understand your question about the importance of how, what type of um, regulatory policies would, would work well for open data to, be to, but also deal with the protection issue? Is that what you're? I guess my question was really quite open. It was just fr from what you've looked at, where are the gaps in our knowledge that we need to fill to be able to understand what kind of regulation we need in developing countries uh, to enable them to protect privacy, but also to enable them to innovate? Yeah. So I think what's interesting from the work we're doing with the, the local partner in, in, um, in Nigeria is that it shows that there is a really this, this issue of the ecosystem, like understanding who are all the institutions that control our data, that, has, that have a, a footprint of us in some form that capture part of that. What we did in the study, and we're going to publish it at the end of this year, so in a couple of months, is it's going to actually look at, okay, like what categories of information are each of the institutions capturing? Like who has my name, who has my address, who has my ID, what other things do they know about it? It's actually even looking at companies. What by their terms of service policy do I know that these are capturing? Do they capture my name, you know, address, et cetera? What fields of information? So I think more work like that that better maps the landscape nationally is quite good. I showed you some um, graphs on the previous thing, which was done by um, uh, UNCTAD, the UN agency, to look at like where are what's the state of regulation, and also at regional level, what initiatives exist. And I think more like things like that are actually quite useful because it helps to at least put within a framework of some kind of key issues what's happening. Um, I will put out sort of like uh, an issue which I don't. We have to think about, and we this report doesn't address is. Um, you know, there's been moves by many countries to in, um, require that data that's being um, captured stays within the country. This deals with the cross-border, but if you think about um, recent issues around China um, with VPNs and um, not allowing them, like basically Apple taking them off of their Apple store, the iTunes store, um, 
this relates to this issue of part of what China is trying to do, and this also is coming up in Brazil, is that data is not being sent outside the country, that's staying within the country. And while there's interesting reasons about why that might be good, there's also creates issues about rights frameworks, because in that case, you would be automatically bound by the regulatory environment in there, and there would be no, the company, this idea of where, the art, where we get this kind of tension between the idea of data protection, but also data commodification. Because the reason the, gover the companies want to take the data out is also to have better control over the data and how it's using it. But at the same time, they're also, then you lose that regulatory environment that they operate in outside of the country. And they're then bound by all the laws. So if the laws are not good in that country, as we saw, there's a lot of weaknesses here, you're going to get into another problem. So a lot of people are talking right now about this idea of cross-border flow of um, data and information and looking at the issue of trade agreements, which also is another thing that people are starting to pay attention to because data provisions are being put in trade agreements and it's sort of like you know these clauses that no one's maybe paying attention to but actually have huge impacts about how our data is being handled. So if your country like UK or mine, the US or where I'm living in Germany signs a trade agreement and it says how my data is gonna be handled, there's definitely things that, might, that I might not be protected anymore. So these are other things that where more work is needed to understand what's happening. I think we've got time for one more question. Um, I'm still trying to refine my question, but uh, um, how would you uh, and I'm and only let's let's have this conversation only uh, in assumption that your digital uh, fingerprint does not being uploaded to the web. You only use it on your card to authenticate uh, uh, locally. So, how is it different? I mean, from so we so just to go to your, this is an interesting question. We in this study did not look about this question of what's the difference between. Um, traditional forms of identification versus digital forms of identification. But um, what the concern, what I understand from the argument there, and is that, um, so let me, let me think about this. So yes, I have a driver, okay, so I have a driver's license, I'm from the state of New Jersey. So I have a driver's license from the state of New Jersey, right? It has my photo, it doesn't have my fingerprint, right? It has things about me, my address, um, it knows what district I vote in, knows what my party affiliation, political party affiliation, and knows if I'm an organ donor, right? And those are things I get because I want to have a driver's license. Um, and that in the U.S. we don't have, you have a social security number that you get. So basically anyone who's born in the U.S., you automatically get this number that's assigned to you. It's not associated with my picture. My driver's license is associated with my picture. That's a different thing. I don't have to drive, right? I could opt not to drive, and I wouldn't need to have that the identification. I could use my passport as an identification card. I could also get another form of photo ID that I could use, right? But I opt to drive, so then I have a digital footprint. Um, what the concern, what I understand, is with the move towards these digital ID systems is one, as we heard from a gentleman from Ireland, is that it, in a way it's not, it's compulsory, um, not by, by law, but by fact that you don't have access to all these things by not having this digital ID. And the digital ID captures a lot of your biometric data. Many things about that I'm not kept, this is my photo license is not biometric, and I'm not, that's not being captured, my biometric data. And the question is, if you think about the issues I just talked about, um, and I'm not talking about the ethical or rights issue, but simply that governments are having their systems hacked, and there's huge amounts of data that's being there, I don't have a choice. I'm giving my, I have to give my data over to a government that, number one, doesn't have proper data protection laws, and number two, given the increase of hacking, might not have um, necessary security, cybersecurity. Your biometric data is not being your biometric data is not being uploaded to any government website. Only it, no, no. it is only used for the initial authentication. There, right. there isn't a biobank that keeps all of. But our there's a lot of concerns. In the case of India, there was a lot of concerns about how the data is being managed by the country and what it's being used for and how it's being used for authentication, and that you won't have any other choice except going through that route. So I'm happy to talk to you more about the questions more, but there is, from the digital rights agenda, there is a lot of concerns around biometric ID and being forced, as I said, these trends. So there's a tension between the need to get more people, have better service efficiency, better delivery, 
um, better control by government over what's happening with their spending and resources with the fact that you're being forced to give over your data. So, but we can talk more about that after the, the Q&A. Just before we wrap up, are there any questions from Twitter that we can ask? Two actually, but I'll, I'll choose one for Mihaela, and she is in ODI Leeds at the moment watching on the live stream. Um, how can we get involved in shaping these debates that you're mentioning, for example, commodification of data and digital rights? So <laughs> I, think, um, I think it's important, I guess we means the open data community maybe. Um, I think what's important is the open data community, we recognize that these are questions we have to tackle, that you just can't think, we, we know the value of open data and there's no doubt about that, right? I mean, we believe and it's shown that there can be better public service delivery, better, more responsive government, more innovation, um, and have economic and positive so social economic and political effects. But at the same time, you can't ignore the fact that there's risks, risks to privacy and, and you need protections in place. So I think it's about understanding where, that, where the two sides of the same coin meet and what types of regulations allow both to happen. That you're feeling protected, but you're not compromising the need, the, the value of the open data that's there. And I think a lot of the issues around ensuring anonymity, not allowing data sets to be cross, uh, ensuring that, cross, that data sets cannot be cross-correlated in a way that can create user profiles that can recapture um, enough information about someone that you can reconstitute um, their personal, basic who it is. I think those are ways that we can deal with some of those issues more effectively. Fantastic. I think we have to wrap it up there. But thank you, Craig. That was yeah. fascinating. Um, and thank you all for coming. Thanks. Yeah. And just uh, quickly, anyone who's online, the papers are all on, on, online on the Web, Web Foundation site. And for those in the audience, the papers are out in front of here. So please take one. OK. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.